Uh, children, preschool through second grade, are dismissed for Children's Church. I know people were taking bets of whether I would remember or not. Maybe next week? Maybe next week? Well, the odds will be closer to even next week, so I'm not sure you're going to make any money on that. Probably shouldn't joke about gambling in church, but we're in Nevada, so... Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. Romans chapter 11. So it was an historic week last week. I got to move the uh, page marker from chapter 10 to chapter 11 in uh, Romans, and that doesn't happen very quickly, as you are well aware. And uh, it's interesting, and it was kind of ironic that when I did so, I found this passage, and of course, 11 comes after 10, and of course, uh, that's what we should have expected, but it's the content of this passage that was noteworthy to me as, uh, as I switched from chapter 10 to chapter 11, and you'll know exactly what I mean as we read this. I want to read verses 1 through 10 for us today. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Today's passage hits on a very emotionally charged subject for Paul and for his recipients. This question of Israel and Jews coming into the kingdom at uh, much lower rates than might have been expected is a concern for him. It's a concern particularly for the church to which he is writing. The church in Rome would uh, not have been small. It would have been growing. And as it was growing... The, the percentage of Jews continued to shrink relative to that of the Gentiles within the church. And we talked long ago at the beginning of Romans about the uh, cultural influences that had happened where there was a time where the Jews were, were forcibly kicked out of Rome and so uh, they were actually out of town for a period of time and uh, some years maybe. And when they came back, they would have found their church had changed drastically. Now it was a Gentile church. When they left, it had been largely Jewish, and now it was Gentile. And so 
you've got a large number of Gentiles, and the church has become more and more Gentile, and, and uh, these Jews were probably wondering, what is going on? And it's very possible for the Gentiles to have been very concerned at this time, or to have had the idea, the impression that, well, God has moved on from Israel. He has set them aside. He's rejected them because, look around, you see a lot more Gentiles than Jews, so uh, you should move over Jews and let us uh, have the center stage or something. That may have been a temptation uh, for them. We don't, we don't know that exactly, but, but we know there were struggles in the relationship between Jew and Gentile. And, of course, the Jews were wondering, well, is, is God done with Israel? I look around and I see so few who are like me. Does that, what does that mean? And so this topic of Israel and has God rejected them was a very emotional topic for Paul and it was a very emotional topic for his recipients. And this same passage, though maybe for different reasons, is a very emotionally charged passage for us. It hits on topics that that cause reactions from within us. And so that being the case, I feel like I need to lay some groundwork for uh, today's passage. Preaching involves uh, the interplay of a couple of different things. We are called to speak the truth in love. On the one hand, we hold forth the truth. We speak God's word. We hold to it. We cling to it. And as Christians and as preachers, we, we never want to compromise the truth. We never want to sell the truth short. We dare not do that. And yet, on the other hand, that truth must be spoken in love. It must be spoken for the, with the concern for the good of the hearer in mind by the speaker lest we become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we speak the truth with concern for the good of the hearer. And that requires that we must have some sensitivity of the heart of the hearer. And personally, I can tend to focus more on the subject matter at hand rather than upon the heart of the recipient of that subject matter. And with an emotionally charged subject like the one today and really what we've covered for most of the last couple of chapters in Romans, that can leave some people feeling like they've been steamrolled, like they've been disrespected by me. In my effort to be precise, to be clear in my interpretation and my presentation, I have come across as disparaging to some people. And I'm sorry for that. I don't mean to disparage Anyone. It's not my purpose to belittle people. And so if you'll bear with me, I will try to be more sensitive to the hearts and needs of the hearer while remaining true to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage today and uh, are grateful that we have your Word in front of us. We're grateful that we have this opportunity to study it, that we get to be together, those of us who are together, and we have the technology to make it so that others can join us from remote locations. We have time set aside on a Sunday morning to be together to study your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would 
Be at work by your Spirit this morning as we open a difficult passage and talk about concepts and ideas that we have talked about before, we have wrestled with together before, that we have our own concerns about, we have our own thoughts about. I pray that you would help us to hear from your word today. I pray that your word would be spoken clearly, truly, and in love. Father, we we want to hear from you, and so we ask for that even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this topic uh, is a difficult one, as we said, for Paul, and there are uh, some reasons for that. Um, He himself, of course, is an Israelite, but uh, the question he's asking is, has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected his people? Reject is a strong word. We talked last time about God working also with the Gentiles, about God bringing others in to his blessing, into salvation. This word is a very strong word. The question is not just is God working with others also. The question is, Paul, are you saying that God has rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? And frankly, at first glance, it might appear so. It might appear so. From the end of chapter 10 and what we talked about last week and these verses that Paul brought up, we uh, are reminded of the fact that uh, these warnings, for example, in verse 19, the warning given through Moses, the warning was, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With the foolish nation, I will make you angry. Well, when? Moses had said those words all the way back in the Pentateuch, and he was warning of what was to come. And he was saying, look, there's going to come a time when you will continue in your disobedience and your hardness of heart. You will continue in your unbelief to such a point where God is going to do this. Well, Paul quotes this, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He quotes this because it's happening. What that means is they had indeed continued in rebellion and unbelief and hardness of heart. They had continued that way. And likewise, Isaiah's warning in verse 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me, says the Lord. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Well, when? Why, why would he do that? As a result of continued disobedience, hardness of heart, and rebellion, he was going to do those things. And now Paul quotes this and says, it's happening right now. Why is your church composed of so many Gentiles and so few Jews, Church of Rome? This is why. This is why. Because Israel has persisted, continued in sin and hardness of heart all this time, such that these realities that were warned of, that were promised of, back in, back in the beginning even, has now come to fruition. And then you have verse 21. Where God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the question is, has God rejected Israel? Well, it might might appear so at first glance. 
But Paul's answer is by no means. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says he himself is proof to the contrary. It might seem like it. You might look at the mix of your congregation. You might see the course of events and where the gospel is going and, and, uh, and who's believing it, etc. You might think that God has rejected Israel, but that is not true because I'm an Israelite and here I am in the faith. Here I am a recipient of this grace. Here I am a Christian. God is still working with the nation of Israel. He gives himself as an example, and Paul does this elsewhere also. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul himself was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says, I'm an example to the contrary. I'm evidence that he's not rejected the people of Israel. So here, Paul, who's writing this letter, he's a member of the Jewish nation. He's a believer in Christ, and he's the one talking to them. He says, I'm an example to the contrary. God hasn't rejected his people at all. There are still Israelites who are believing, who are benefiting from God's grace, who are being included in salvation, who are those he's working with. Paul himself has proved to the contrary, and he continues and explains that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God foreknew his people. All the way back in the history of the Old Testament, back in Genesis chapter 12, we remember when God came to Abraham and called him and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your offspring and I'm going to make you a great nation. He was choosing a people. He foreknew that people. And then he continues in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, uh, not just is it one man and his wife in one lonely country over here that God is speaking to when he says he's going to choose these people. Now in Deuteronomy, they've become a great nation. There are millions of people. They've come out of the land of Egypt. Much history has passed. And this is what God says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7. God had not rejected his people whom he foreknew. These were those he had chosen even all the way back in Abraham and reaffirmed that again and again, including with the entire nation being brought out of of the land and on the verge of going into their own land, what was going to be their home. God is saying, I chose you and I have kept you. I have kept you even today. And it's not because you're a wonderful people that I brought you out of the land. It's because I chose you and I love you and I want to show myself strong on your behalf. And so I brought you out of the land, out of the house of slavery, and I'm going to take you into this land. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now you'll recognize as you're looking at your outline there that I have only two points. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. (laughs) But the way he builds his argument here, 
He's raising the question, point number one, about God rejecting Israel in just a couple of verses, really a verse and a half, essentially. And then he's going to explain his answer for the remainder of these verses. He's going to develop more fully his answer of no, indeed, God has not rejected his people. And he's going to do so in a more extended fashion. And so that's why your outline looks a little bit different. I know we tend to think in threes. We expect threes, but I only gave you two. I hope that's not entirely disappointing, but I think we can fill up the time anyway. That's my commitment to you. <laughs> God hasn't rejected his people, yet the gospel is going beyond Israel to the rest of the world. God hasn't rejected his people, yet most of Israel continues in unbelief. How then can Paul say that God has not rejected them? Well, the answer Paul gives here is that Israel consists essentially of two types of people or two groups of people or two categories of people. In his language, the remnant and the rest. The remnant and the rest. And so I will give you an overview of what he's, uh, what the argument that he's asking here, or the argument that he's making here is, and then we will dig into it in more detail. Question number one he asks is, has God rejected Israel? And his answer is no. He has reserved for himself a remnant. He hasn't rejected Israel. He has a remnant. Well, question two, how has God secured that remnant for himself? And the answer is not by any works or merit of their own, but by grace, by grace. So we come to our text itself and we see, first of all, that the remnant is kept despite their actions or maybe better, despite their lack of merit or despite their lack of worthiness. What he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, which is interesting. Elijah, who's the prophet to Israel, he's appealing to God against Israel. But this is what he says. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. What is God's reply to him? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there was a remnant in the past. Clearly there was a remnant in the past. You have this situation where Elijah, if you remember the story going on in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is on the run because the king and queen want him dead. And he keeps, you know, preaching to them and, 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 and speaking God's truth to them, what they don't want to hear. And so they actually threaten his life. And he runs off and he, and he goes and he climbs this mountain and he finds this cave and he's hiding. And, uh, and you have this, this interaction between God and him where, remember, this is where the great wind and the cracking rocks and the, all the noise and, and where does he hear his voice? Well, in the still small voice is where Elijah hears from God. And you have finally... God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah says these words. He says, They're, they've rebelled against you utterly, 
In every way, they've rebelled against you. They're tearing down your altars. They're doing all these things. They're hunting the prophets. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. Those are his words to God. That's his complaint to God. He thinks he's the last faithful Israelite. And so he asks him at one point, just kill me. Just kill me and have it done. And so Elijah's feeling alone. He's feeling abandoned by all of God's people. He's the last one. And God's reply to him is, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're alone? Now, 7,000 people out of an entire nation, that's not a great number. But he's not alone either. There are 7,000 that he has kept who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They are the remnant. They are the remnant that Elijah didn't even know about, but God had kept for himself. You think you're alone, you're not. I have a remnant. I have these 7,000. And so there was a remnant very clearly in the past, but look at verse 5. So too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Even now at the present time, you, you, you feel like you're alone. You're looking around your church and you're seeing just a few other Jews, just a few other people of Israel, and you're thinking, what's happening? But there is a remnant that God has kept. Even now there's a remnant that God has kept. I'm an example of that, Paul says. I'm one of those, and you're another one, and there are others. Those who are the remnant that God has kept for himself. There are other Jews. Despite how many have rejected the gospel, there are other Jews. There are many who have believed the gospel and are part of the remnant. Even now, Paul says, there was and always will be a remnant of faithful people, those who believe among the masses of unfaithful and unbelieving. And so I think we could pause right here just for a moment and remind ourselves that sometimes we feel alone. We personally, maybe the place you work, you feel like, and I go there and I'm the only Christian there. And they're all out to get me. There are the bosses out to get me. Circumstances are out to get me. My coworkers are out to get me. I'm alone. Well, you may be alone there. You may. But you're not ultimately alone. You may feel like you've been abandoned. We as Christians may feel like we've been abandoned and we're the tiny, tiny minority. And that may be the case. But God has kept for himself a remnant. He's kept for himself those people who are his own, chosen by grace. He has guarded his remnant. God himself ensures that there will be a remnant because The way Paul words it, he keeps them for himself. God had said, I have kept for myself 7,000. And then he says, that was in the past. Well, now in the present, there's still a faithful remnant. There is a remnant chosen by grace, he says. The remnant of people who truly believe exists. That remnant exists because God said there would be a remnant because he kept them. Because he chose them by grace. God is the one who keeps the remnant. He guards for himself. He keeps a remnant for himself. But 
it's important for us to understand that he does that not because of their actions, but despite their actions. He chooses them not because of their worthiness, but despite their unworthiness. He chooses them not because of their merit, but despite lack of merit. The remnant does not deserve God's blessing. He chooses the remnant by grace. They're chosen by grace. They don't deserve God's blessing, and and yet they have God's blessing. They have His blessing because God chose to bless them despite what they really did deserve. He says in verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He chooses them not based upon their own merit. He chooses them despite their lack of merit. He moves on in his conversation, in his argument here in point B. The rest are hardened because of their actions. The rest are hardened because of their actions. The remnant was kept despite their actions, but the rest are hardened because of their actions. Listen to what he says in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So you have here, when Paul is looking at Israel, when he's looking at the people, he sees that it's better not to talk about the entirety of Israel, the entirety of the people. Instead, he wants to talk about the remnant that he calls the elect here and the rest. That you can look at this people group in two different ways. They're hardened because of their actions. Well, I remind you of what we read already in 19 and 20 and 21 of chapter 10. He's already proven that they've, this is their heart. They've continued in unbelief. They've continued in rebellion. Consistently, otherwise, the, the warnings that were given by Moses and the warnings that were given by Isaiah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier would not have been coming to fruition even now had they not continued in their unbelief. But indeed they had. They had continued uh, as a disobedient and contrary people, as he quotes in chapter 10 and verse 21. These were hardened because of their actions. The others were redeemed. They were chosen despite their lack of merit. And these receive what they merit. This concept here of hardening is clearly a very difficult one. And we, we talked about it in chapter 9. But I think the way he words it here and the way he's talked about it in this passage is helpful for us. That here are a people who, who are hard of heart. They are in rebellion. They've persisted in rebellion, not just a week, not just a year or a generation. They've persisted in that rebellion from the time these warnings were given. And so, what has God done? He's given them over to what they've pursued. He has let them run headlong into the things that they valued. They wanted to to have a relationship with God on on their own terms. 
Those were not God's terms, but God finally said, you can have those. You can have that route. You can have that behavior. He hands them over to it. He hardens them. And so he turns them over to continue to pursue, to do what they have wanted to do. This is what he says, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. They refuse to understand. They refused to, to respond, and so God gave them a spirit of stupor. They, they didn't want to see what God really had for them. They didn't want to see it, so God gave them eyes that could not see. They no longer wanted to hear from the prophets, so God gave them ears that would not hear down to this very day. And this is a, this is a dreadful concept. A dreadful concept that God would give an unbeliever over to his unbelief. To let him run that to the ground. To let him bear all the fruit that that can bear. And that's what he says he does here. The elect obtained it, the promises, the, what they were seeking, righteousness, right standing with God, they obtained it. But the rest... They were left to what they wanted to do. They were hardened in their course of action, and they run it to the end. The rest were hardened because of their action. I want to look back at verse 5 and 6 and conclude with this notion. He says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about how the gospel comes to us. When you're on the outside and you're contemplating perhaps going to church, or when you think about, as an unbeliever, you think about what a Christian is, you think, well, a Christian is someone who has their life together. And we Christians know that's not the case. <laughs> But on the outside, they're thinking a Christian is someone who has their life together. Look, they have, they have followed the rules. They've put things together. They've patched up the weak parts. They, they have made it work. They have made themselves look like Christians, and therefore now they are Christians. They deserve it. From the outside, that's what someone looking in can say is, well, those Christians, you know, they're, they're goody-two-shoes and, and whatever, and I kind of wish I was that good, but I'm not really. But, you know, they they're Christians because they deserve it. And I don't deserve it because I'm not good. There's a distinction. There's a distinction. Well, there's, of course, the other picture when an unbeliever looks at a Christian and they see, you know, some of our stuff that we wish they wouldn't see, that our real life, our sin comes out. And they look and they say, that guy's a Christian. And that's the way he kicks his dog. That's the way he behaves. That's... Those are the things he lets come out of his mouth? And he's a Christian? Well, he's, he, that guy's not a real Christian. See, what they're, what they're assessing is whether they think we're worthy of being a Christian or not. Well, of course, 
that concerns us in the sense that we want to have a good reputation. We want to have a good witness and testimony in the community, right? But that person is not our judge, and that person doesn't understand that, that I'm not a Christian because I deserve it. I'm not a Christian because I'm worthy to be a Christian. You are not a Christian because you're worthy to be a Christian. Likewise, that person who thinks the way to become a Christian is to become worthy of it needs to understand that indeed they are not worthy of it like we are not worthy of it. I remember trying to share the gospel with one of our teachers in high school right after we had become Christians. And so here we were, you know, seniors in high school and we're going to we're going to lead this teacher to Christ and we're sharing the gospel, right? And we were new Christians and we didn't understand very well how to share the gospel. And, and, but we, we did the best we could and the gospel was shared. And this teacher's response was, I don't know, I'm, I'm not really worthy of that. I'm, I'm not a good enough person. You know, it's the notion that if they walked in the back door, the roof would collapse, you know? The lightning would strike, you know, because they, they came into the church building because they're not worthy. Well, the fact is, and the painful truth that, that is the reality we really need to start with, is that none of us is worthy. We're, we're not. We're not in here because we're worthy. The fact is that God himself is utterly and perfectly holy. He's not pretty holy. He's not a whole lot of holiness stacked on top of itself. He's perfectly and utterly holy, and therefore sin can't remain in his presence. And anything less than his standard of perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, causes us to be guilty before him. And, and I'm, not just, I'm not just a degree lower. Like, God is holy and perfect and righteous here, and yeah, I almost made the grade. I got a, you know, 92. No. The fact is, in, in contrast to him as our creator, as the perfect one, we're guilty. We're utterly guilty. Just the, the first and greatest commandment causes us to be guilty. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our capacity, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, if, if we haven't kept the greatest and first commandment, where do we stand with God? We have guilt, and it's not just some guilt. It's not just a degree of guilt. But it pervades all of our lives, and we stand before God completely guilty. And so our, our position in ourselves before God in our own righteousness is, is a position of, of danger. That we actually are, we, we deserve His judgment. We deserve wrath from Him. Because He's holy and righteous. He's our Creator. We ought to live up to His standard, but we don't. And the reason we don't is because of our own sin. And so we're guilty before him and we're all guilty before him. And we're not in here because we're less guilty before him in ourselves than the person who's out there. We are not here because we are worthy. In order for grace to be grace, it cannot be earned. It must be freely given. It's not that that we were pretty good in some way and so God saw that, high-fived us and gave us salvation. And those poor people out there who, who don't know Christ, who are on the outside looking in, they didn't have that thing right. They didn't have that good thing. He says, the choice of this remnant is by grace. 
Grace is something we cannot earn. If, if it is something we can earn, it is not grace. And he says this remnant is chosen, kept by him, by his own grace. And so when we stand before God, when we, when we assess our lives and our own selves before God, we need to realize about ourselves what he's talking about here in point two, which is our own unworthiness before him. The remnant are not the remnant because of their worthiness. They're the remnant despite their lack of worthiness. And those who receive God's justice, which is part of what it means to be hardened, those who receive God's justice are receiving exactly what they deserve. God's justice. And so that's, a, that's where we find ourselves before God. We must have not just pretty good righteousness, but perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness is not available to us. I cannot generate it. I cannot do it. Not only can I not work long enough, but the work that I do is so often tainted by my own sinful motives. And I end up spoiling what I would do to make myself righteous. Not to mention the fact that I've got a past track record that I can't make up for. Enter Jesus. The Son of God comes on the scene. Always obedient. Who obeyed from the heart. That, that, greatest, that first and greatest commandment that trips us up right away. It didn't trip Jesus up. He always loved the Lord his God with all of his capacity. And the second commandment, which is like it, he always loved his neighbor as himself. Always. And on and on, he fulfilled the law perfectly. He himself was righteous, and yet he went to the cross to pay the penalty for your and my unworthiness, your and my unrighteousness, our guilt for our sin. And by faith in Him, and that's the only way that can be applied to us so that we can have grace, so that we can have peace with God, standing before Him, rightly relating to Him, not because I'm in any way more worthy, but because of Christ. It's by grace. God Himself is the one who keeps His remnant, whether it's of Israel, or whether it's of us. In order for grace to be grace, it cannot be earned. It must be free. Some receive hardening for what they've done, and others receive grace despite what they've done. That's you and me. Some are hardened for what they've done. Others are elected despite what they've done, despite their lack of merit. Justice is when God gives hardening and gives judgment to sinners as they deserve. When he gives them what they want and then the justice for that, that is justice. And salvation is when God gives grace to sinners who deserve hardening and judgment. That's the grace of God at work in saving us. And that's what he's talking about here. As he's answering the question, has, has God rejected Israel? He says, no, there's a remnant. There's a rest, but there's also a remnant. And you, Christian, 
you, Jewish Christian that Paul's writing to, you find yourself in the remnant category. How did you get there? Not by anything you merited on your own. Not by anything you accomplished. Not by anything you had to contribute to to get you included. He kept for himself a remnant chosen by grace. And the unbeliever, the person who is not yet in Christ, the person who is out there or the person who ends up receiving judgment, he, he received what he deserved. He received what you and I should have received. He received what you and I deserve. And this is the beauty of the gospel. When we think about these things, we, we have to keep in mind what Jesus received. The Jesus who was always obedient to the Father. Jesus who had no guilt. Jesus who was perfectly and utterly, pristinely righteous and holy. What did he receive? He received my deserts. He received in himself what I deserve. Taking upon himself not just punishment on a tree, not just whipping and, and, and scourging and all that went with that, not just being nailed up on the cross, not just the crown of thorns and the blood and the pain and the agony, but the wrath of God for me and for what I have done was focused on him and directed to him so that he certainly did not receive what he deserved. He received what I deserved. And we get the benefit. That's the gospel message. And that's what Paul is driving at here. He is saying, indeed, Israel has not been rejected. God is still working by grace. He's still working by grace and he's drawing people to himself. And there is a saved remnant within Israel with whom God will continue to work. And the rest of the chapter will spell out a lot more of what that looks like in the long term. But for us, it's important to remember that those who are the remnant are so because of God's goodness, not because of the merit of the remnant. There are a couple of points of application here for us as we, as we close. The first one is gratitude. Sheer gratitude to God that we who are saved are no more deserving of that salvation than the person who receives justice from God. We ought to be a grateful people for what God has done for us, for what Jesus took upon himself for us, that he would stand in that path, that he would, though he himself deserved glory, yet he took my punishment. The wrath of God poured out upon him, and and I receive mercy. I receive a place in in the remnant, though I don't deserve it. What gratitude that ought to inspire within us that would that would cause us to look to him and give him thanks, that would cause us to praise him, that would cause us to lift him up in conversation, to lift him up in our hearts, to lift him up in prayer, to rejoice in what he has done for us. The first response, I believe, is gratitude. And the second response is like it. It is hope. It is hope. No person is so unworthy or unfit for salvation as to be beyond the reach of God's saving grace. There is no one who is so bad that he's beyond the reach of God's salvation. And I wish I had 
uh, could go back and redo that conversation with my teacher from high school. And I wish I could go back and I could make clear. And we tried to make clear in our 18-year-old ways. But I wish I could go back and make clear to this person that indeed he is not worthy, nor am I. But we have a saving and a gracious God who would give him eternal life despite his unworthiness like he did for me. No person is so unworthy or unfit for salvation as to be beyond the reach of God's saving grace. And you are not so unworthy or unfit for salvation that God's grace can't save you. God has graciously kept for himself a remnant. That was true in Elijah's day. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. Not, not just amongst Israel, but amongst all people. Gentiles as well. God still graciously gives salvation to undeserving sinners. And we ought to praise God. We ought to give Him glory. We ought to thank God and worship Him that He does that. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word. And it's on a big topic. It's on topics that are emotionally driven for us, that are, uh, they have to do with our salvation. They have to do with the salvation of, of Israel. They have to do with your working in history. They have to do with you keeping your promises and, and all of the course of the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and what to expect in the future. These are close to home. Father, we want to handle these topics and difficult topics with gentleness, with sobriety, with concern for one another, with an awareness of our own hearts and those of others. But we want to handle your word rightly also. We want to understand what you have to say to us in your word. We ask, Father, that you would take what we've looked at today, that you would minister in our hearts this week to come, that your spirit would continue to draw to our minds these topics and this passage, that you would be at work shaping our hearts and shaping our minds. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ, that we know we were not deserving and are not deserving of this salvation, and yet you have given it to us by grace freely. You have indeed kept for yourself a remnant today, and we rejoice and praise you that we get to be a part of it. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We rejoice in that truth and we rejoice in this salvation. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord who gave himself, who took upon himself not what he deserved, but what we deserve. That we might benefit, that we might be the beneficiaries, that we might be those who receive grace and blessing that we do not deserve. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.
Thank you all. God bless you. You're dismissed.